I'm entitling this message, Job's Perplexity. Job's Perplexity. Job chapter 3, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born. And in the night in which it was said, a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May the darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. Oh, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout come into it. May those curse it who curse the day. Those who are ready to arouse the Leviathan. May the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light but have none and not see the dawning of the day because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb nor hide sorrow from my eyes. The book of Job, you'll remember in chapter 1 and chapter 2, began at, in the beginning with a description of Job's prosperity in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And then it plunges into a series of accusations and attacks, we might say adversity, from chapter 1, verse 6, to chapter 2, verse 13. So it goes from prosperity to adversity and quickly turns to perplexity in chapter 3. In Ryrie's study Bible, it contains a note. It says, whereas the introductory two chapters were written in prose, here begins a long series of poetry. Chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 42, verse 6, is a long, long poem. It's poetic language. But it isn't poetic language like maybe you and I understand. When you think of poetry, you probably think of something that rhymes. or It's a wonderful way of saying things. In Hebrew poetry, it often is used to bring out drama in the most intense sense of the word. As a matter of fact, it doesn't return to prose until the conclusion in chapter 42, verses 7 through 17. In this section from chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7... Job will break his silence and cry out in profound despair. He wishes he'd never been born in verses 1 through 10. He wishes he was still born in verses 11 through 19. And he asks the question, why is life given to those who live in a constant state of abuse or despair or pain or depression or darkness in verses 20 through through 26. And later Eliphaz will respond to Job's groaning with a sermon of his own beginning in chapter 4. 
And we as readers have to remember that Job Job doesn't curse God as Satan predicted in chapter 1 verse 11 and chapter 2 verse 5. Remember, we have access to the invisible dialogue that has already taken place in heaven. We know what Job does not know. That there is a cosmic wager that has taken place. We also know, not only will he not curse God as Satan predicted and his wife suggested in verses, chapter 2, verse 9. Warren Wearsby adds this insight. He says, quote, it is good to know that Satan cannot predict the future, unquote. Remember, the wager has already taken place. Do this, do this, and this is what will happen. And guess what? It doesn't happen. And guess what? Satan doesn't know the future. Only God knows the future. God knows the beginning, the middle, and the end. What Job curses is the day of his birth. What sense is there in a life with so much suffering and grief? And so Job is going to ask and answer a lot of questions. Now, one of the things that I want to point out to you, too, is that Job is at the low point of his life. Let me ask you a question. I just want you to think just for a moment. I just want you to think just for a moment about the worst day of your life, the worst day, the day that you were at the lowest, the day that the tears flowed freely, the day when your heart was broken, when you were shaking, when you were wondering whether you could even go one more step. Think about if somebody met you on the worst day of your life and then decided everything about you based on the worst day of your life. And so part of what we need to be able to do is have real sensitivity and compassion. When we evaluate our lives from the pit, from that place of darkness, from that place of despair, from the place of pain that seems unceasing, It makes perfect sense that we're going to ask the question, is life worth living? Misery, suffering, what does it accomplish? Job is perplexed. Does God have a rhyme and a reason in what's happening in our life? Is there purpose in our suffering? And the question is way more than just simply why do people suffer? He's going to basically be asking the question, why do Good people suffer. Why do righteous people suffer? Again, Ryrie points out that that Job's basic belief system was that God always blesses the righteous and afflicts the wicked, but his own experience doesn't seem to support this claim. And judging by his own experience, Job has to conclude that there's something wrong with his theology. Job can't connect the dots of what he believes about God and what is happening in his life. Will Job react with perplexity, with anger, or even hostility? And some of what Job is about to say is going to be exaggerated. And some of it's going to be untrue. But throughout all of it, he doesn't renounce God. I also want to point something else to you. Job's friends are all convinced 
that right living will always lead to some sort of right reward. In other words, if you do everything right, if you do everything right, if you say everything that's right and think everything that's right and do everything that's right, then there is this sense in which we think that everything's going to turn out right. And there, his friends think that that's the case. What you sow, you reap. And if you do everything right, then you will be rewarded. And if you do something wicked, then you will be punished. And sometimes in our minds we believe that God blesses the righteous and he punishes the wicked and we leave it at that. And so we're thinking that the righteous will always be rewarded and the wicked will always be punished. And so we have to ask and answer the question, is that always the case and is that always right? Is there a one for one correlation between what we do and what happens to us? Satan actually accuses God of this very thing. Remember, hey, the only reason why people serve you is because you serve them. The only reason why they bless you is because you bless them. The only reason why they love you and serve you and worship you and believe in you is because you are Mr. Gravy Train. You love them and you provide for them and, and, and you do everything for them. But if you take anything away, well, guess what? Then they'll deny you to your face. And so we begin with the portrait of deep despair. Look at verse 1 again. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the date of his birth. Note the transition. After this. Because it connects Chapter 1 and chapter 2. After this. After what? After the prosperity. After the confrontation and the adversity. After this. Prosperity, adversity, calamity. Now the book will continue in both a monologue and a dialogue. Sometimes it will be strained. Sometimes it will be painful. And some have suggested that Job's friends have kept their mouth shut. Remember what they believe. Righteous people rewarded. Wicked people suffer. Seven days. On an ash heap. On a garbage heap. They're looking at Job. They're watching Job. They're getting their clues from Job. Now some have suggested that Job's friends allow Job to speak first out of courtesy or respect. It could very well be that they're just simply at a loss for words. When a mother has lost her baby, when a man has lost his job, when a family member has lost a loved one and you approach on that sacred moment and you ask yourself, what do I say? What should I say to this woman? What should I say to this this man? How do I even approach them? Was the silence an accusation? Think about what Job is thinking. What awful thing had Job done to deserve such suffering? 
And Job could offer no explanation for his suffering. And Job pours out his frustration and weeps over the baffling mystery. In poetic terms, he will curse the day of his birth and wish the night of his conception had never taken place. Job voices his deep desires that God would somehow go back and time and space and just simply undo that moment. Have you ever had that situation? You woke up one day and you said, why am I even here? Why was I even born? God, what were you thinking? What were you thinking placing me in this family? What were you thinking about when you gave me this father, this mother, this brother, this sister? What was going through your head? And in verse 2 it says, And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said, A male child is conceived. Remember, they didn't have Hallmark back in those days. When a lady gave birth to a son or a daughter, they didn't send you flowers and and cards. They would go into the tent and announce, it's a boy, it's a girl. Job has been sitting on the trash heap and scraping his wounds. And he simply, understand this, he's not simply down in the dumps. He is literally in a dump. He has lost his wealth. He's lost his employees. He's lost his children. He's lost his health. This wealthy and noble man who was sought out for wisdom and strength and godly counsel. Now just simply wishes that he was dead. And Job's friends witness his catastrophe and wonder what is happening and why. Why? Why do so many people love the book of Job? And I'm going to suggest to you there's many reasons. But even now, even in this dark place and in this difficult place in the passage, everyone who's reading it, they understand something right from the start. And that is, we sense Job understands suffering. This is not just a story. You see, you meet people in your life, and then in some ways they reflect the story of your own life. Maybe your mother or your father died, or maybe you lost a sibling, or maybe you suffered some sort of catastrophic illness. Maybe something happened to you, and you meet someone, and they begin to relate the story of their life and the circumstances of their life. They tell you about the darkness and the emptiness, and they talk about a time of abuse, and they talk about this or that, and you see, not just in the conversation that they're having, but you can see it in their eyes. And you can see it in the wrinkles in their face that they reflect a life of deep and profound difficulty. And you relate to them. We sense Job really understand suffering. Job's grief and Job's pain and Job's anguish is real. Job is in effect saying, look, why was I ever born? We might even say... I wish I'd never been born. The statement isn't entirely informed by suffering. It's true that he's lost his family, and it's true he's lost his wealth, and it's true that he's lost his health, and as you know, that grief and sorrow and pain 
can sometimes cause you to say things that you wouldn't normally say. But I think that there's something else that's happening here. There's a withdrawal. There's an isolation. You see, it's one thing to lose your family and lose your wealth and lose your health. But Job has experienced something that he's never, ever experienced ever before. He doesn't sense the presence of God. He's on a trash heap and his prayers seem empty and the room seems dark and the circumstances seem empty. It's one thing to suffer difficulty and loss. It's one thing to suffer grief and darkness. It's one thing to suffer all of these profound emotions. And it's another thing to sense that God isn't there. And when you feel that way, there's an emptiness. And a loneliness that's hard to overcome. And so Job says, may that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadows of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. Another translation reads, let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. These are expressions of pain. Deep pain. Powerful despair. Profound loneliness, Job's cry, make my conception and birth like it never happened. Turn my birthday into a day of darkness. As for that day, or as for that night, verse 6, may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. This is all poetic language. And look at the image, the image of darkness, the image of light. The poetic language is this. Job is in effect saying, erase my birthday from the calendar. Instead of celebrating my birthday, mourn the day. And so when he uses the images of light and darkness, remember, before a baby is born, the baby dwells in the darkness of mother's womb. And then when the baby is born, it enters into the light of day. And so Job wishes that the date never existed, that his birthday is erased from the calendar, that no one should celebrate his birth, that there should be no shout of joy. He says in verse 7, Oh, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout come into it. That night be barren. He's in effect saying, Not only is my birthday the worst day that has ever happened, it should be the worst day for everyone that it's happened. May that night be barren. He's saying, may no births ever take place. May it be a solitary day. May those curse it who curse the day, verse 8. Those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. And I'll talk about that in just a moment, about Leviathan. Job invites those who curse days... To curse that day. A cursed day is a day that one wishes has never happened. And as you peer back in time and space, there are certain days that you wish had never happened. On December 7th, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. 3,000 Americans lost their life. In our community, you think of April 20th, Columbine. 
And see, for many, many people, April 20th is April 20th is April 20th. But there are people in our community that, that April 20th becomes the day that their son died, their day that their daughter died. It's not a day that they welcome. It's a day that brings back all of the unhappy memories. Or you think of September 11th. And the planes go crashing into the towers and people lose their lives. And so every September 11th, as it rolls around, you think this is the day my mother died, the day my father died. Or August 30th. And you may think, why is that a bad day? Hurricane Katrina came in and flooded and 100,000 people were displaced, including my own family. And then five years to the day, to the day, my father died. Every year would go by. It was the year that he lost his home. It's the year that he lost his livelihood. It's the year that he lost everything. And the weight and the pressure and the difficulty and the pain. And it heaps up on you like sorrow upon sorrow. And then Job uses an image that sometimes perplexes people when they read it. Leviathan. Those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. Who is Leviathan? To the liberal scholar, this is a mythological dragon that occupied the sea. But to people who actually take the Bible literally, Leviathan is a gigantic reptile that lives in the sea that has a gigantic head and swallows everything in its path. Job envisions a giant reptile like a dinosaur capable of swallowing everything in its path. And he invites them to arouse this dinosaur to wake up out of the sea and swallow that day. He says, may the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light but have none and not see the dawning of the day. Job envisions that the stars become dark and they somehow manage to survive to the dawn. And sometimes at the breaking of the dawn, you can see Mars and you can see Venus. And he says, he, he says, may it be swallowed up in darkness. Verse 10, because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide sorrow from my eyes. And again, even that little word in verse 10, the word because, provides a transition of all the preceding verses, because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb. How can you look at that day and say it was a good day? How can you celebrate that day? How can you even pretend that that day has any value whatsoever? He says that's the day that was supposed to be the day that I should have died. Job imagines a world where his birth never took place. He imagines a world where it would have been better to never have been born than experience the trial and the tragedy and the pain and the sorrow and the suffering because it was so intense and so all-consuming. It's the kind of pain 
that grips your heart and takes away your breath where you can't even begin to imagine any of those good days, any of the glorious days. You see, just for a split second, Job had forgotten all of the good days. He forgot about the joy of his family. He, he forgot about his good health. He forgot about his wealth. He forgot about the abundant blessing. It seems like those days never, ever really existed. Imagine a pain and a depression and a sorrow that's so profound that it crowds out every good day that you've ever lived. That's what he's thinking about. And Job isn't the first person who's ever felt that way. And he won't be the last. Maybe you've had a day like that. As a matter of fact, I can't help but thinking... Do you remember the night that Jesus was betrayed and he makes his way into the Garden of Gethsemane and he stumbles as he anticipates the coming cross and the Bible says he sweats as if it were great drops of blood. Job curses the day of his birth, but he doesn't curse God. And by the way, he doesn't blame God for wrongdoing. And he will question God and he will even wonder why God has allowed these things. But once again, we're reminded that life is a gift and sometimes there's pain and sometimes there's heartache and sometimes there's suffering. I think I've told you the story. That right after Columbine, I was invited to speak at an event in Phoenix, Arizona. And it was maybe six months after Columbine, and our church was still located on, uh, over there by, by Pierce. And every day, I would drive by Columbine High School, every day, day after day after day. And I would remember the images that I saw, and the pain that I saw, and the death on the sidewalk, and the broken lives, and the hurt lives, and the difficult situations. And I remember, I remember, I went to uh, an event and it was time for me to speak. And those of you who know me, I speak for a living. That's what I do. And I got up and I'm getting ready to give a speech. And all of a sudden, like some gigantic boulder crushes me. And I just start to weep. And I'm so embarrassed and I'm so humiliated because I don't want to cry and I don't want to weep. It's a group of people. I have something to say. I need to say it. And I finally said, just give me a moment and, I, and I'll be able to say what I need to say. And I, I, I paused for a moment, composed myself, and then gave my speech. And a lady came up to me. She had a six-year-old child who just died of brain cancer. And her husband had left her. It didn't survive. The marriage didn't survive. And, and, and her, her six-year-old had died of brain cancer. And she told me this horrible story and this, this gut-wrenching story. And I, I, as I was listening to her story about losing her daughter and, and her husband walking away from the marriage, and I thought, what am I going to say to her? What, what words of comfort could I possibly say to her? What could I possibly say to her? And I asked her, 
I want you to pretend like you could go back in time and space and you never meet your husband, you're never married, you never have this child, you never give birth to this child, the child is never diagnosed with cancer, you never go to the hospital, there's never a single needle, there's never a single treatment, you don't have to bury your baby, your husband doesn't leave you. If you could go back and make it all go away, would you? What do you suppose she said? That's exactly right. She said no. And I said, why? Why would you do it all again? And she said, I would do it all over. I would bear every heartache, every burden, every difficulty, all the shameful things, all the the cries, all the tears, all the hospital, all the gravesite. She said, I would do it all over again if I could just hold my baby in my arms one more time and hear her tell me that she loves me. And as soon as she said that, it was like a light came upon her and a dark cloud lifted from her. And all of a sudden she began to understand, no, my life makes sense and my daughter's life is important. And our love and our relationship and our commitment to one another, all of that matters. But can you imagine? And being in such a dark place and an empty place that every good and every wonderful and every glorious thing that has ever happened to you, you wish that it would go away. The Bible says, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God, but the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of way more value than many sparrows, it says in Luke 12. God knows the smallest details of your life. You see, one of the things that we have to begin to understand is God allows Job's suffering. Now, here's the big question. You've already read chapter 1 and chapter 2. Big question. Does God love Job? The answer is yes. Has God allowed the suffering? Yes. Does the Lord care deeply about Job? Does God have a wonderful plan to bless and restore Job? Those of you who have read all the way to the end, you know that that's going to happen. But we're not always aware of the whys. We're not always aware of the secret conversation that has taken place in heaven. And we're not always aware of the future. It's not wrong to express grief. And Job will express his grief. It's not wrong to be hurt. It is wrong to express grief in a way that charges God with evil. Or wrongdoing. There are people who will tell me, go ahead, tell God you hate him, he can take it. And I go, that's a bad idea. It's a bad idea to accuse God of being something that he's not. He's not bad, he's good. God is good. It isn't a good idea to curse God, and it isn't a good idea to blame God, it isn't a good idea to pretend. To impugn the character of God. 
or the revelation of the scriptures. The Bible says that he's good and we're called to trust him and we're called to accept that suffering and trial and tribulation come and that we live in a fallen world and that we can believe there's a purpose in our affliction. And we may not know what that purpose is or know the purpose in an incomplete way, but we remember what the New Testament says, that our light affliction is just for a moment. In Psalm 34, 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Psalm 37, 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he's going to bring it to pass. But Job will continue. Let's read. And I'm going to read all of verses 11 to 26. Look what it says. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? By the way, Those of you who are Bible students, you might want to either circle or underline why. And then when we come to the end of the chapter, you tell me how many times you read why. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep, then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? There the wicked cease from troubling. There the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and the great are there. The servant is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Who long for death but... It does not come and search for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God is hedged in? For my singing or for my sighing comes before I eat and my groanings pour out like water for the thing I greatly feared has come upon me. One of the most quoted passages in all of the book of Job. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me. Reiterated again in Shakespeare. And what I dreaded has happened to me. Verse 26. I am not at ease. Nor am I quiet. I have no rest. For trouble comes. Job wants what everybody wants. To be free from suffering. Not only does he wish he'd never been born, but now he longs for death. Now again, I want you to remember, 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 remember. He's covered with painful sores. Can you imagine living in a world where every moment of every day you are in excruciating pain? He has a disease and there's no known cure for the disease. He says, why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? Since Job was born, here's what he's saying. Okay, look, I acknowledge, I I, I ask the question, why was I born? I realize that I am in fact born. And since Job was born, he expresses the desire to have been abandoned at birth and left to die. 
when you read stories of mothers who leave their baby, when you read stories of mothers who refuse to nourish their baby, what kinds of things well up inside of your heart? You think, how awful, how horrible, how terrible, how could anyone do such a thing? And what Job is basically saying is, If my mother had abandoned me and all I did was simply die of malnutrition, this would have been a preferable death to the the circumstances that I'm facing right at this very moment. He says, for now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth. Who built ruins for themselves. Job imagines himself. Listen to how it sounds. Job imagines himself. Long dead. With the kings and counselors of the earth. Some of you are very young. Some of you are more mature. Some of you have been around for a long time. Some of you 40 years ago. You graduated from high school. Imagine Job. He's thinking back 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or 50 years. And he imagines a world where he has long been dead. The ruins may be an allusion, I think, to the great pyramids of Giza and Cheops, already a thousand years old. So when he says, or with princes, or he says, with kings and counselors who build ruins for themselves. In other words, he, he thinks about the great building projects that are around the world that are already starting to fall apart. Or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and the great are there, and the servant is free from his master. Job is imagining a world, a future world, where both the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead, what he is doing is he's speaking of the place of the dead, and in Job's mind, any person who's dead, even the wicked dead have it better off than he has it. problem? It's not true. And you probably have met people who may have, in a moment of pain and frustration, said to you, I wish I were dead. And you knew, you knew they're not ready to be dead. You know that there's a place of the righteous dead, and you know that there's the place of the unrighteous dead. In death, Job suggests that the wicked no longer trouble those who suffer. The weary are at rest. In death, the captives are at ease. They're no longer abused by their oppressors. In death, the rich and the poor are at rest, and the slave is set free. I think we might read this and think, well, is that true? Is all of that stuff true? When I worked for the Department of Social Services, someone said to me, in order to justify abortion, they said, well, don't you think it's better to abort the child than for the child to grow up and live in an abusive household? Here's what they were saying to me as a social worker. Don't you think it's better to abort the child than have the child grow up in a home where there will be abused? And I said, don't you think killing the child is the worst form of abuse? How, how do you get more abusive than killing somebody? 
Job is imagining a world where the pain and the abuse is so profound that he imagines it's better to be dead. Does Job believe that sinners and saints go to a place of blessing and peace? I'm going to suggest to you that Job has a revelation, but he has an incomplete revelation. We have a more complete revelation. Jesus speaks in Luke of Lazarus and a rich man. And Lazarus goes to the place of the righteous dead and the rich man goes to the place of the unrighteous dead. And Lazarus doesn't go to the place of the righteous dead because he's poor. And the rich man doesn't go to the place of the unrighteous dead because he's rich. One has a right relationship with God and the other one doesn't. Does Job believe that sinner and saint go to the same place? That no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you go to a place of blessing and peace. I don't think that that's Job's view. We know that the unrighteous go to a place where the unrighteous dwell. And we know that the righteous go to a place where the righteous dwell. And we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So how are we to think about what we're looking at? Well, look what Job says. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul who long for death, but it does not come and search for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? Job is in effect saying, look, why do miserable people live? Sometimes maybe you might have asked that question. That person's so bitter and so angry and so miserable. Why should they even be alive? Does our misery accomplish anything? Job's asking the question. Does our misery accomplish something? As he's making the statement, he says, I want to die, But death refuses to come. And the expression, and who God has hedged in. He's used that expression earlier in chapter 2. Remember when Satan said, you put a hedge around him. But here it means exactly the opposite. Earlier in chapter 2, it was a hedge of protection. And now Job speaks of being hedged in that is trapped, bound, defined by the suffering. Job feels... That the suffering is what defines his life. And so he asks the question. He feels that the very purpose of his life has been called into question. Why am I even alive? What am I doing? Does suffering accomplish anything? And you know what? From chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. This is a question we're going to keep coming back to. And we're never going to answer it completely. But we can answer it a little bit of a time. Let's try it for just a moment. Does suffering accomplish anything? I'm going to suggest to you that it does accomplish something. 
if we yield to God, because guess what? In our suffering, we can do one of two things. We can yield to God or we can resist God. We can embrace what God wants or we can reject what God wants. As a matter of fact, this is the point that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. For those of you who were here in the last Bible study, remember we just quite literally finished the book of 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3... I should have marked it, but now, just like a mere mortal, I'm flipping pages looking for the passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the countenance which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? He's talking about a glorious ministry from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to chapter 5, verse 9. He talks about the reality of pain and suffering bringing us to a place of submission. As a matter of fact, I have posted at our website 25 reasons why Christians suffer. Let me give them to you quickly. The, the, the biblical citations are posted at our website 25 reasons why Christians suffer. To produce the fruit of patience. To produce the fruit of joy. To produce the fruit of maturity. To to produce the fruit of righteousness. To silence the devil. To teach us. To purify us. To make us like Jesus. To glorify God. To prevent us from sinning. To make us confess when we do sin. To chasten us for our sin. To prove our sonship. To reveal ourselves to ourselves. To help our prayer life. To become an example to others. To qualify us as counselors. To further the gospel witness. To make Make us more than conquerors, to give us insight into God's nature, to drive us closer to God, to prepare us for a greater ministry, to provide for us a reward, to prepare us for the kingdom, to acknowledge God's sovereignty. I'm sure there's more. Are any of those reasons or none of those reasons are some of the reasons why you suffer? Job doesn't see the end. By the way, when Job says, I do not see God's end, it means God's purpose. That's what he's basically saying. Remember in James 5.11, Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. In the book of James, James notes that Job at the beginning doesn't see the end, and he doesn't see the end until you get to the end. And you might see the beginning of the sorrow, or you might be in the middle of the sorrow. Job will question the purpose of his life. Why does God create certain people for a life that seems to be filled with misery and to be filled with pain? In verse 24, he says, For my sighing comes before I eat, and my groanings pour out like water. Job is in effect saying, That his pain and his suffering is so profound that even eating becomes a painful proposition. To just literally put food in his mouth and chew it up and swallow it become an exercise in what feels like death. 
And then he says in verse 25, for the thing that I greatly feared has come upon me and what I dreaded has happened to me. Don't just skip over that verse. We've only got a few minutes, but I just want to bring out a couple of things about this verse. When he says, for the thing I greatly feared has come upon me and what I dreaded has happened to me, what does it mean? I think that it means that Job had thought long and hard about the possibility that something like this could happen. Remember in the opening chapter, he is a good man. He is a blessed man. He is a righteous man. He is a man who worships God and sacrifices, and God has rewarded him. But it seems to indicate that there was a time in his life that he thought about trial, and he thought about hardship, and he thought about affliction, and he had given a great deal of thought To the possibility that a real trial and a real hardship and a real difficulty could become a part of his life. What would happen if he lost his family? What would happen if he lost his wealth? What would happen if he lost his health? And I think that there's two ways to even think about what we're reading right at this very moment. I think that there's a healthy way and there's an unhealthy way to think about what we're saying. Is it a healthy thing to say, what would my life be like if something horrible happened to my family? What would my life be like if all of the things that I've come to trust in and rely on all of a sudden disappear? What would happen to my life if all of a sudden some strange thing that I see about or I read about or I watch on TV, I saw the floods take place in northern Colorado and I saw the fires in southern Colorado and I know about the hurricane in Katrina and I know about Columbine and I know about 9-11 and I know that real people experience real heartache and real heartache Hardship. And what would my life be like? What would happen to me if, for whatever reason, I lost my wife or my husband, my child? Job is, in effect, saying, My worst fears have come true. And by the way, I'm going to suggest to you that Job wasn't living in fear. He wasn't living in insecurity. I'm going to suggest to you that Job was really trusting the Lord. And it wasn't his health or it wasn't even his wealth that was causing him the most difficulty. It wasn't the health or the wealth that Job found peace and security and his identity because he really trusted the Lord. And trouble has really come his way. But the most difficult time, the most, the most painful time, the most upsetting time is the the sense, where are you, God? Where are you? Job doesn't deny God, and Job doesn't curse God, and Job doesn't question God's holiness or power. In fact, it's God's justice that's Job's problem. How can a holy and a powerful and a just God permit this kind of calamity and he says in verse 26 I'm not at ease nor am I quiet I have no rest because the trouble has come so think about what you've just read he wishes he'd never been born he wishes that he were dead 
And the big question, of course, becomes, can you imagine a trial that would be so severe that it would cause you to question your very existence and it would somehow undo every smile, every laughter, every moment of joy. Other great Bible characters have experienced this kind of sorrow. Moses asked God to take his life in Numbers chapter 11 because of Israel's persistent rebellion. Elijah prayed that he would die in order to escape from Jezebel in 1 Kings 19. Jonah was so sick with God's mercy towards Nineveh that he begged God to kill him in Jonah chapter 4, verse 3. So, verse 11, verse 12, verse 23. How many times has Job asked why? Who said seven? Who says six? Who says five? Five is right. Because one is an interpolation. Job suggests that he could endure the pain and the grief if he could only understand why God has allowed it or permitted it to happen. Have you ever done that? Lord, I think I could put up with this if I I just knew what you were doing. Question. Is that true? When you know the reason why it's happening, does that make it less painful? The answer is no. The answer is no. Job suggests that he could Deal with it. Now, by the way, remember we've read chapter 1 and chapter 2. We know why it's happening. Job is asking the question, why? Question. Is it easy to ask the question, why? Is it hard to answer the question, why? The answer is yes. Because the truth, unless we knew what God had done in the beginning of the chapter, and unless we've read the whole book, unless we come to the end, we still struggle with the question, why? So what do we know? We know that when trials come in our lives, God is on the throne. The government is shut down. But God is still on the throne. The government is shut down. But a real God is still in charge of the universe. Later in Job 23.10, Job will write, But he knows the way that I take, that he has tested me, and I will come forth like gold. Question. When God places you in the fire, will you come forth like gold? What do we know? Sometimes pain and fear and curiosity crowds out the truth. But God is in control. And the things that happen in our life, even though we don't always understand it, there is a loving plan. And God will make his purposes known in the end. So let me ask you a question. What happens when your faith is tested? When it's stretched? 
what happens when you experience something that you neither expected or predicted or have any control over. Spurgeon relates many times his feelings of inadequacy and depression and despair and disillusionment. In a lecture to his students, he called the minister's fits. Let me read it to you, and then we're going to call it a day. He says, Before any great achievement, some measure of the same depression is very usual. Such was my experience when I first became a pastor in London. My success appalled me, and the thought of the career which had seemed to open up so far from elating me, cast into the lowest depths out of which I uttered my misery and found no room for a gloria in excelsis. You know that, in excelsis Deo. In other words, a, a way to glorify God, glory to God in the highest. Who was I that I should continue to lead so great a multitude? By the way, he became the pastor of the first megachurch. I would betake to my village obscurity or immigrate to America to find a solitary nest in the backwoods where I might be sufficient for the things which would be demanded of me. The depression comes over me whenever the Lord is preparing a larger blessing for my ministry. The cloud is black before it breaks and the overshadows before it yields its deluge of mercy. Depression has now become to me a prophet in rough clothing. It's this poetic way of saying that like John the Baptist shows up, depression, depression like John the Baptist shows up and points to the fact that there's somebody else that's coming after the depression. He says, the temptation is to run and hide, to isolate, to pretend nothing is wrong. And to refuse to admit that I'm really in trouble. (laughs) I write, Job isn't afraid to wrestle with God. Job is willing to come to terms with the trial and the issues that plague him. Job is willing to fight on the battleground of faith. And And it will be fought. Not just over the loss of things and the loss of people and the loss of comfort. Job is about to swallow a bitter pill. And Job invites us to seek hope when we're surrounded by ashes. And when there's boils and there's pain. So quickly, for some, the days are so dark that even seeing the light seems like too much to ask. For some... The experience is so extreme, the hurt so painful that hope seems to be gone. For some, the valleys seem so deep and the rivers so wide and the anguish so profound that relief doesn't even seem to be a possibility. But here's what we know. Grief and depression are a part of a fallen world. And so... With grief and depression in a fallen world, how do we find a way to trust God, to love God, to hope in God? 
How do we fight the demons of sadness and despair and sleeplessness and exhaustion and lack of energy and the ability to perform even the most basic tasks? Remember what Job is doing? He's sitting with his friends. And sometimes those friends are going to be helpful. And sometimes those friends are going to be less than helpful. But it does make sense. It is okay to get help. It is okay to find someone who will pray with you. To find someone who will be with you. To find someone who will point you to hope. As a matter of fact, I can't help but think of what the prophet Isaiah relates concerning the ministry that the father gives to Jesus, the son. In Isaiah 6, Jesus will bring good news to the afflicted. Jesus will bind the brokenhearted. Jesus will proclaim liberty to the captive, freedom to the prisoner. He'll give a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting, and they'll be called oaks of righteousness and the planting of the Lord so that he will be glorified. By the way, Jesus will show up. And I want to invite you to read the book of Job because the question of why is not going to be answered. But in the end, God himself is going to show up. And I guarantee you, when God shows up, most of your questions of why will disappear. See, I did the whole third chapter. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, it makes perfect sense why people don't want to teach Job chapter 3. But Lord, we pray again that we will have a sensitivity and a submission. Lord, that When we read this chapter and we understand people are in a dark place and they're experiencing pain so profound and the valley is so deep and the river is so wide and the anguish so, so painful that relief doesn't even seem possible. That Lord, we will with sensitivity and patience be a source of hope of blessing, of encouragement, of grace, of mercy, and compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.